I'm Jeff Cohen. Jan Buckler is Senior Vice President at DBRS Morningstar, a global credit rating agency in New York. He's traveled the world living and working in some remote and fascinating places and also leading him to finding his Jewish roots. Jan, I want to welcome you to Saturday to Shabbos. Hi, how are you? Glad to be here. Thank you for making some time for us today. Let's take it from the top. Give me a sense of like, where is your family from? Where are your parents from? My parents were both born in the United States. My grandparents, one came from uh, like Slobodka and one came from uh, area in Poland where one year it was Poland, one year it was Russia. I don't have great information on every place they came from, but somehow they got to the United States and they got here before the Holocaust. Wow, and so your parents were both born here. So where did they meet and where were you raised? My parents met because my father's side of the family, I guess, had a function in um, a little town called Millis, Massachusetts. And when he was there, he got bored at the function and somebody at the function said, hey, go up to this house three doors up and uh, I think there's a young girl there you might be interested in. And it was my mother, and my father was very tall, so she liked that because she was 5'10". So they met, and uh, I grew up in York, Pennsylvania. We got there. My father was an athletic director at a school. He was in the military. He was a drill instructor. And then um, when he came out of the military, he got a job in this place in Pennsylvania. So that's where I grew up. So what was your childhood like from a Jewish perspective? Um, We were conservative. Um, My grandparents were pretty much orthodox. So we went to, Shab- went to Shul on Shabbos in the morning and with the junior congregation and things like that. I went to Sunday school and, uh, and Hebrew school two days a week after my regular classes at public school. It was an interesting Jewish community, though, because on Sunday, everyone in the whole community went to the Jewish community center, and all of the grown men were addressed as Uncle Lenny, Uncle whoever, and the women, Aunt so-and-so. So it was very close, and they had a lot of games. So there, it really was a fostering of a Jewish community. But, you know, the religion that I practice now was nothing like what I was doing then. And how did you feel about Hebrew school in those days? Because I think back to my time and some of my friends when you're in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, and some kids love it, and some view it as, oh, man, I have to go to more school after school. How did you feel about it? I didn't enjoy it. I didn't think we were learning anything practical. I would act up in class, and I remember there were certain things we had that I liked that I would memorize because I liked it, but I remember visiting that Hebrew school uh, after I graduated from high school, and I was impressed because the kids learned how to bench, and they learned how to, you know, say some other things like that, and we really, when I was there, we were just reading practice reading a a piece of Tehillim or something, you know, I mean, it just didn't, uh, it didn't seem practical. And did you end up having a bar mitzvah? Yeah, sure. I had a bar mitzvah. After the bar mitzvah, we went to the Jewish Community Center, like I mentioned, and we had cake, and uh, I think I had some schnapps, which was fun. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it was pretty simple, but it was nice. Relatives came, and um, yeah, like that. So at that point, when you're you know, around 13, for a lot of kids, that's the end of the line, because there's not like a next step when you're in a conservative shul. So what was happening for you in those teen years and high school years post bar mitzvah? So pretty much I had to go to Sunday school until I think 10th grade. At the end of 10th grade, there was some process called confirmation. And then after that, there wasn't really much. I I didn't really go to synagogue that often. If we went to Massachusetts where my grandparents were, then I'd go with my grandfather. We walked to shul. And it was a nice experience there with him. I mean, we said Kiddush, we kept kosher at home, but um, that was about the extent of it. So you actually were doing more than 
other conservative folks just in terms of keeping a kosher home and at least going to shul regularly and doing something after your bar mitzvah. That's already more than a lot of folks you hear who are raised either conservative or reformed. Mm-hmm. Well, my mother was the one who kept the Judaism in the house. My father was working a couple of jobs, so he wasn't home that much. And like, I don't ever remember my father having an aliyah or wrapping tefillin, but my mother kept the Jewish identity and... Um, and that was it. So, so we, we made whatever Jewish life we could. I remember that York, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, is about, I don't know, 50 minutes, I think, from uh, one of the suburbs of Baltimore. So we would drive down there in order to go to a kosher store to get our kosher meats and, uh, and everything we need. And then we stocked up. And I remember my mother, Olive Shalom, coming back and uh, putting a top of like a Jiffy peanut butter can with like, um, <laughs> you know, oil in it and flecking the chickens you know, while um, <laughs> under, under the flame. So she really put a lot into it. So as you're finishing those high school years and you're starting to think about college, if you talk to someone who's, say, from from birth, going to YU or a school like that is part of the equation of what they're going to be doing for college. As you were looking at it, was religion a piece of the puzzle? Was it about what you were going to major in or what kind of career you wanted to have? What was the mindset as you thought about going to college? So mine was basically how to get to a college and be able to pay for it. We grew up, I was fairly, uh, I don't want to say poor, but we were at the low end of middle class. And I knew that my parents weren't going to be able to pay for it. My parents were going through a divorce. It wasn't going to be pretty. So from the time I was in fourth grade, I met a officer in the Navy. And uh, he came in, was very tall and thin. And he had a lot of uh, gold on his shoulders and gold on his hat. And I thought that would be a nice thing for me. So I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. And uh, when the time came, I chose the Merchant Marine Academy, which is located in Great Neck, New York. So I was in the middle of a very Jewish-Jewish area. And um, there were shuls there. And uh, my mother passed away in my first year at the academy. So I would go to the local shuls to say Kaddish. And people there were very welcoming. And I show up in my uniform for... Friday night, whatever, and I was often invited to meals, and my Judaism really changed when I started going out on the ships. The Merchant Marine Academy has a feature where you go to school for a year at the school in Kings Point, and then you travel on a ship, working on a ship to learn about it for six months, and then back to school for a year, six months at sea, and back to school for a year, and that completes your education. So when I first left on the ship, it made a coastwise trip down the East Coast, and I ended up in Savannah, Georgia. And when I was there, I was in my year of saying Kaddish. So I went to try to find a shul, and I looked around, I was in, having trouble, and I met a nice lady on the street who had a big badge that said Chamber of Commerce. So I asked her, and she directed me to a shul. And when I walked in, I opened the door, and there was a rabbi there, and he, the first question he asked me was, give me your wallet. Well, I guess that wasn't a question, but he asked me, he said, give me your wallet and give me, what else do you have in your pockets? So he put it in a secure place. He gave me a talus. He gave me a sitter. He gave me a seat. And he said, by the way, you're coming to my house for lunch for, <laughs> for, for the Suda. So, so that was it. So that was a man named Rabbi Baruch Taub. And um, he was the first Orthodox rabbi that really had an effect on me. Had you ever been on like a cruise ship or any kind of boats growing up? I'm just wondering what that feeling is of I'm stepping on this boat and I'm going to be on this for the next six months. 
Is it excitement? Is it loneliness? Is it something in between your, what are you at this point, 18, 19 years old that you're yeah. having this life experience of traveling around the world? What does that feel like? Well, I wouldn't call it loneliness because before my mother passed, when I was in my senior year of high school, I met the girl who would become my first wife. So we corresponded with letters. I, she had the schedule for all the different ports I was going to visit, and she wrote me letters, and I have letters at every single port. And there are maybe 35 people on the ship, so you're not really lonely. I mean, there's no, there wasn't any Jewish person, but it's just amazing because when you go out on ship, I don't know if you've seen the movie Titanic, but they stand up on the front of the ship on the bow, and they look out, and some days you look out and you see that the ocean is as flat as glass. And mm -hmm. then a couple of days from there, you have amazing seas. I sailed through the North Atlantic through a hurricane, and the seas were 80 feet high. So oh. the the waves, the power that the waves have, and you know, you see Hashem in nature. So the power that the wave has and what the ship has to do in order so it doesn't sink or, or whatever, it's uh, it's truly an amazing experience. So there were many, many highlights of the year. So I think loneliness was probably the last feeling I would feel. It was just so dynamic. Yeah, it was quite an experience. And so do you end up getting a degree during this time? What, what were you majoring and what did you ultimately get your degree in? My major was marine engineering. And the interesting thing is that while I was at that school, I finished all the math in the first year. And I started going to Adelphi University at night. It's probably a 20-minute drive. So when I graduated from the Merchant Marine Academy, I also graduated from Adelphi University. So I got my bachelor's and my master's in applied math at the same time. So tell me how the studies continue after you have that degree. You mentioned Adelphi University. What are you going for at that point? Um, after I finished those, I applied for a PhD in nuclear engineering because I studied some nuclear engineering while I was at the Merchant Marine Academy. They had a nice setup. And um, I was accepted into, at MIT, and I was accepted at a school called Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And I chose RPI over MIT because there was a professor who I could work with at RPI that I met at a nuclear engineering conference. So I chose to work with him. A PhD is a lot of working closely with a thesis advisor. So I thought he would be an excellent choice to work with. So I turned down MIT and went to RPI instead. And so you mentioned there was a woman who was writing you letters that were going to every port. So where is the relationship at this point in your journey in terms of the education and going to RPI? Uh, so we married, uh, her name was Debbie, we married uh, my senior year at the academy. So we quote-unquote dated for four years, and um, when I before I graduated, the beginning of my senior year, the school changed the rules and allowed students to get married. So we got married in August of 1974, that's a long time ago. And um, yeah, so we were married and she came with me, and while I was at RPI getting my PhD, she got a master's in business administration. So um, we were both going to school, and she was working, and um, we had a simple life. Unfortunately, we went through a period of infertility during that time, but we, um, we made a nice life for ourselves up there. There was a small Jewish community. We met some people, so um, things worked out. And then uh, after I graduated, I got a job in nuclear engineering at Westinghouse in a small town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So we would go to Pittsburgh. There was a nice, very big conservative show there. And we met some amazing families that were still fairly close around, still fairly close to today. So what were the discussions like with your wife in terms of, 
you know, if we're going to be fortunate enough to have a family, how we want to raise them in terms of Judaism. You just mentioned that there's a conservative shul that you can be part of in Pittsburgh. What were your plans long term for your family at, at this point in time in your life? At that point, it was to raise them conservative. You know, to we like the conservative shul. We like that fact that the families sit together. So we were, you know, we were pretty staunch in that kind of a uh, upbringing. My wife grew up Orthodox. But the town that she grew up in, people, it seems, didn't re- really invite each other so much for Shabbos meals, and everybody kind of stuck to themselves, except when they came together at Shul. So it wasn't such a warm experience, and I think she told me that she married me because it was not Orthodox. So that was our goal, to basically stay conservative. So I can't wait to see how this story is going to unfold when you have your wife saying, I married you because you're not Orthodox. And I know later on in the story, we're going to find out that you, in fact, are. So I, I can't wait to watch that part of the story unfold. So I understand at this point, there's another move that happens. This is related to your career that you end up leaving Pittsburgh? Yes. My youngest brother was doing an internship at a Wall Street firm. And he came to visit me in Pittsburgh one time. And I was working on work that I absolutely loved which was building nuclear power plant simulators. It's complicated, it's got computers, it's got many different things that for me made it very enjoyable. But you're working like almost 24-7. I mean, I didn't work on Shabbos, but I was working all the time. So when my brother flew out specifically to see me, I didn't have time to spend with him. And when I'm taking him back to the airport, he said, you know, you're a fool because people are working less hours than you with computers and getting paid a lot more. So I think you should apply to a Wall Street firm. And when I grew up, all I wanted to do was engineering. I wanted to work with machines and computers and tools and who knows what. And um, when somebody says something like that to you, it's like, okay, I'll send a resume. So I sent in a resume and I got hired. And so I left Pittsburgh and moved the family to a town in New Jersey that um, my wife had a relative in Montclair, New Jersey, and I would go into New York City every day to go to work. So, so that was the start of my Wall Street career back in 1984. And when we moved, it's funny, the, um, my wife was pregnant. We had our first child, a girl, and she was pregnant with our second child, and the baby was due, and I got this job. So my wife said, just go. So I left. And I started working at Solomon Brothers in Manhattan, down at the bottom of the Manhattan in the Battery. And uh, four days later, she calls me and says she's having the baby. So now I have to try to get from New York City back to Pittsburgh. And the company that I worked for tried to get me a helicopter to get to the <laughs> airport quickly and this, that, and that. But luckily, I made it uh, just before, maybe with an hour to spare before my son Joshua was born. So uh, it was a, a fun kind of time. But we had two other kids uh, then, and we were going to a shul, a conservative shul, in the town of Caldwell nearby. So our, our life was, um, was pretty good. I was active in the shul. My children actually were going to the Hebrew Youth Academy, which became Kushner. And um, so they started going to the Orthodox shul because we liked the kindergarten. And then once the they were in the kindergarten, Either, although we were conservative, we sent them to an Orthodox school because we liked the quality, and then they continued into the early grades, but it didn't seem to work out for us there because um, the kids were making fun of my kids that said, let's eat what the Goyim brought for lunch today, even though the school published 
a list of what you could have for kashras, and we stayed with that ruling. We had a kosher home, and we stayed with that ruling. Different kids from different communities would say to my kids, let's say with a goyim brought for lunch or things like that. So I had to pull the kids out of the school. That's really sad to hear because you would think that kids and certainly the adults at that school are being told, our goal is to bring people into the fold, not turn them off from what we're doing here at school. And it would seem like the quickest way to turn someone off who's maybe at the beginning of becoming a little more orthodox is to be making fun of them, mocking them, and making them feel ostracized from the community. So that must have been pretty painful to be experiencing that just as you're starting to explore it. It was painful. And plus, I was on the board of the school. I thought that they could guts it out, but bullying is bullying. And my wife was correct at the time that the best thing to do is to take them out. So they went to Solomon Schechter. What is your wife feeling at this point who kind of came into the marriage saying, I'm glad you're not Orthodox because I didn't have like the best experience. Now she's seeing her kids have not great an experience in an Orthodox run school. What, what are her feelings at this point? Her feelings are, I want my kids to be happy. We didn't have kids for seven years. We have four now, God, you know, thank God. And the main thing is, I want them to be happy and grow up with good lives and, and whatever. So if the school, just because the school is orthodox is not a reason to keep them there. If they're not happy and they're not doing well, then we have to pull them out. So you're in a conservative shul. The kids are now at a Solomon Schechter school. So there must be some kind of turning point that launches you from that baseline of what you're doing as a family to taking on something more. So what, what happens at that point? So it came time for Pesach. And when the kids go to school like that, or even Solomon Schechter, of course, usually the teachers give them a lot of like great projects to do for Pesach, right? So they come home with these folders, and the kids at the Seder are excited. They want to say everything. And besides reading the Haggadah, you can go for hours you know, just listening to all the great stuff that the kids prepared. So my in-laws didn't have such great attention span that they would want to sit there and listen to all of this. So I decided, you know something, let's go away for Pesach. Let's try one of the Pesach programs and see how we like it. So I looked around and based on cost and description and other things like that, I picked a program that happened to be in Arizona. So we got on a plane, we flew to Arizona for Pesach, And some things happened there that really had a huge impact on the direction that my life would take. So give me an example or two of what was going on at the program. So when we first got there, first of all, I got to tell you that as we got there, we had a lot of baggage. And so to make my kids happy and give them both a chance, I hired two limousines to take us from the airport to the hotel. And each limousine, you know, had a big sunroof. So the kids got to like stand up, you know, in the driving and wave. They had a good time. (laughs) Anyway, the first night um, when we go to Davin Mincha, uh, when we finish, a rabbi walks up to the lectern and says, we're not going to be able to start Myriv for a certain period of time. So he handed out these sheets. And the sheet happened to be, uh, I mean, it was like a little booklet, right? And the booklet happened to be different pages of, Talmud and maybe things in Tanakh and different things that he wanted to discuss. He was the scholar in residence. So he wanted to discuss during the time period of the of the whole the whole Yantif. So he began by saying, uh, "Open to this particular page, which I think was the Gemara. Maybe we think it was Pesachim Daf Gimel, if I remember right." And he says, "What's the difference between Nisim and Neflos?" So he was getting to the point that Hashem 
during the time of the plagues made some of them within the scope of nature and some of them outside the scope of nature. So he bent the rules of Teva to do some of them. And Hashem, uh, he was talking about, the rabbi was talking about how Hashem did these kind of things. Of course, we have like the hail being fire and ice together, things like that, where it's just outside of what we can really perceive. So he starts talking about Hashem's creation and he starts using concepts of time dilation and Einstein and many different things from physics. And all of a sudden my ears perk up because I just got my PhD in nuclear engineering. So I'm really enjoying this. And as a result of it, any time this rabbi spoke, I made sure that I was at his shear for the whole, the whole yontif. And so one of the shirin that I went to was he was giving a Talmud shear and there were some bachrim from Switzerland who happened to be there. So I remember that he would say something, and then all of a sudden they would go, oh yeah, that's in Shabbos, Daf Lamed. Or <laughs> he would say something, and they would, they would just know where it is. And I couldn't figure out what they were really talking about, because I had no exposure to Talmud at all. So the next year we went back, and the year after that we went back. And this same person, the same rabbi, was there for the three years. So finally, after three years, I got the notion to go talk to him about the concept of my learning Talmud. So he asked me where I lived, and he said that I should go get $10,000 together, and I could go to this one place, and, and they would help me, and whatever. So the notion that $10,000 was a part of it wasn't so great to me. But during the time that I was there, I met a rabbi, and he happened to be the mashkiach. So the second year that we were there, we had Pesach with a family that we met the first year. And you know how they do it when you go away to the programs, you can be in a big ballroom and they put the panels, you know, they slide the panels and they make different rooms. So they have the big public seder and then they use the panels to make mini rooms and they put different families in the mini rooms. So we got assigned to a room that was as big probably as a basketball court. And I don't know how that happened, but it just did. And so my family and another family with uh, maybe together eight children, two, uh, so four parents and eight children had this size of a basketball court for our own room. When my children and their children uh, came time to open the door for Elion Novi, they opened the door and punked. This much it's rabbi is standing there. <laughs> and you have to picture this. He has a folding table under his arm. He's got his food that he's carrying. I think he had something hanging from his shoulder, and he's looking for a place to make his own Seder. He was so busy with Gebrocks and no Gebrocks and everybody else's needs that as a Mashkiach, he didn't get time to sit down to make his own Seder. He knew that this room was still the size of a basketball court and thought he would just go off in the corner and make his own Seder. So when my kids opened the door, they thought he's Elio Anavi. <laughs> so he comes in and he just, all he wants to do is just go sit and make a Seder really quick. So I piped up and I said, no, you can't do that we'll start again, and at least we'll be all together. And he says, no, you really can't do that, because after all, we were at Eliyahu and Navi. So he was very tired, so he sat down, he had something to drink, and he started telling us stories, and that turned into starting the, the Seder, basically almost over again. Whoever got tired went to sleep, but I think four of us stayed with him until three o'clock in the morning, and, um, you know, had his Seder, but I remember it was so good. So I stayed in touch with that rabbi, and when I came back to New York, we were supposed to meet at a restaurant, and 
this rabbi is wonderful, but he's always late. So while I'm waiting, I'm looking at the bulletin board. I'm bored. I don't know what to do. The bulletin board has a sign, Partners in Torah, Learn Any Topic, and it had a phone number. So I called up and I said I wanted to learn Talmud. So they told me to go to the shul, the Young Israel on 16th Street, and they'd have a rabbi there. And so with that rabbi, once a week, I started learning brachos. So that was my first introduction, actually sitting with a, a Talmud with you know my own rebbe and, and trying to go through. So I want to back up one moment to Arizona, because clearly you're getting inspired and turned on by what you're learning, and it's connecting to what you've studied, and you're so inspired that you've now taken on learning yourself through Partners in Torah. But at the same time, you're in a conservative shul, your kids are at Solomon Schechter. So where in this point is your wife and kids kind of catching up to how you're starting to feel about this? They are not with me. I tried to do it. I figured I have to work on myself before I'm ready to go tell my family and my children, or even ask them if they would consider coming along with me. I figured I have personal development that I have to go through, so I tried not to do anything that would change how they have to do things at this point. I was going to learn once a week, so that's not really impacting my family at this point. So you're doing the learning more from an educational perspective. It's not so much about, I'm learning things and I'm gonna change personally, my level of observance, or my family? Or are you making some personal changes yourself beyond the learning that you're doing? You hit it on the head with the first part of it. It was more to see what everybody's doing, what's it talking about, what is the Talmud, what kind of things does it expose you to. I didn't know enough at that point to be able to say, I'm interested in changing my life. But let me jump ahead a second. So I switched jobs, and I ended up at a company called Chase Securities. And every day, there was a person in a suit and a hat that would walk by my desk at lunchtime. And one day, I asked him, hey, what's your name? Where are you going? So he said his name was Jay Pernikoff, and he was going to Davin Mincha at the Aguda. The place that we work was right across the street from 84 William Street, where the Aguda used to be. And so Jay and I would go to Davin Mincha at the Aguda, and we would go early maybe 10 or 15 minutes, and we would sit in the lobby at the good and talk about the Parsha, and then the doors would open, and then we would go in and David Mincha with everybody else. When uh, the doors opened, the doors opened early, and the whole table was packed with food. So I, they invited us in, and when I went in, they gave me a seat, and the food was great. They had a nice lot of desserts, and I don't know if you've ever been to like the Russian tea rooms or the Russia sure. in Brighton Beach. You know how they have the platters, multiple platters stacked up high? So they had platters stacked up high like that, and I love to eat, so I figured better say thank you. So I asked uh, somebody get a mazel tov or a you know, birthday or something, and they said, no, we're making a siam, but I didn't know what a siam was. So... I said, okay, well, if I, if I come back tomorrow, can we do this again? And they said, no, and we have bad news for you. Because the Masech, this is Bava Metziah, and the Masechta that we're going into is Bava Basra, which is the longest of any. But if you come, one man told me, if you come, we'll make sure you have cookies and coffee. And so that's it. So I, it took a little bit to change my schedule, a week or two. And then I became a regular at the Aguda on 84 William Street in the Dafyomi, which at that time was being given by... Rabbi Elimelech Bluth. So I imagine some of our listeners don't even necessarily know what Dafyomi is. So let's take a quick step back and explain what exactly you were taking on by, by learning this. So Dafyomi is an amazing program. I mean, the idea sounds so simple now, 
but years ago there was a rabbi named Mayor Shapiro who went to, I think, the Aguda Convention and suggested that wouldn't it be great if Yidden had something to talk about all the time, and they could do that by learning one page of Talmud every single day. And it would take seven and a half years to go through the Talmud, but everyone would be together on the same page, the whole world who's learning it. So I'll just jump ahead a second. A practical implication of that is that I'd be on the subway. I lived in Upper West Side before. I'm, I'm in Tom's River now, but I lived on the Upper West Side, so I would take the subway to work. And I often would be studying Talmud on the way. And so many times it happened that somebody would come up to me and say, did you see what it said on today's doc? You know, can you believe that this happened? How do you understand this Maklovas? What did you see? I had, had in the Havamina. Oh, well, this wasn't the Havamina. It was something else. And all of a sudden you have this conversation with someone and it lasts the whole subway ride. You can't believe you're there so fast and, you know, you need to talk to them more. So his idea uh, really came through. And of course, today there are so many programs that halacha yomi, things that you do. So uh, by studying one page a day, the Talmud you go through. So then we have these big uh, siyums, and luckily I've been at four of them now. And uh, just so many people come together and uh, celebrate, you know, this great, amazing uh, Torah Shabbat Peh that Hashem gave us. Uh, jumping far ahead, in the, but staying on the same topic, I married a girl from Borough Park whose family is Klusenberg. So my brothers-in-law told the Rebbe that I had I just made a seum in, in Manhattan, and I had 150 people there, and they told the Rebbe. So the Rebbe, when he saw me, he said, Blinader, he wants to come to my next seum. So I said, but Rebbe, you have to wait seven years. So he shook his head and held up three fingers, indicating that I had to finish Shas in three years. So I figured out where the Dafyomi would be in three years, and I figured out everything that wouldn't be covered by Dafyomi in three years, and I set myself a schedule, and so every day I'd learn Dafyomi, and I would learn another three Amudim in order to make it go on the schedule, and I completed it in three years, just like the Rebbe said. So um, fortunately, the time when I completed it, I was looking forward to making the Siam with the Rebbe, but COVID hit, and the Rebbe was in Invelis, so... Um, I'm still waiting to make my fifth CM, but I'm in my sixth cycle now. And, uh, you know, every day's learning experience because, unfortunately, the time I have in the day is very tight and it's hard to review everything. So some things, you know, we forget a little bit. So going through as many times as possible is a big help. So you actually just said that you married someone from Borough Park. So are you saying something happened to your first wife? Yeah, unfortunately, she passed away from cancer about 12 years ago. So I, um, I had a great marriage with my first wife, Debbie, and wanted to get married again. And it took a little bit, but within uh, a year and a half, whatever, I was married to, to my second wife, Hani. So it's also clear that your studies are getting super advanced at this point, but the other piece of the puzzle is making a personal choice to become more observant. So when is that happening? And then the woman that you married, is she fully observant when you meet her, or are you on a journey together? I was doing it for intellectual purposes in the beginning. I started in Bava Basra and uh, had Chesakriya, and then when Bava Basra completes the, the cycle, it goes from Bava Basra to Nida, and then we start in Brachos, and then we're in Shabbos. 
And when we're in Shabbos, with everything, Yechayev Misa for that, and Yechayev Misa for this, and if you don't keep Shabbos correctly, and many different things like that, I stopped and asked myself, okay, so now I've gone through several Masechtas. I have a taste. I haven't gone through everything, but I have a taste of what Talmud is. So am I going to do this as an intellectual exercise, which is fine. I mean, you can use, lose yourself intellectually in the Talmud. It's so advanced, the Rebbeim and the Tanayim and the Amarayim. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing. So... You can do that, or I said, am I going to actually put this into practice? And I decided I'm going to put it into practice. So that's when things started getting crazy. Because <laughs> then, our, when I was with Debbie, our typical Shabbos would be Friday night, let's say, go to shul, come home, have a nice Shabbos dinner, invite guests, you know, Shabbos morning, go to shul, hang out with the kids, and then 4 o'clock comes, all the friends, all the adults, like, would go out, have dinner, go to a movie, come back by 9.30, because the babysitter has to go home. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, couldn't do that anymore. We couldn't have a time where, you know, okay, we'll make a, we'll make a pshara, this week will be Shomer Shabbos, and next week we won't, all right? So it didn't work like that. So all the people that we were friendly with, that we were going out with, they dropped us like hotcakes because we didn't go anymore. So I didn't ask my wife to do what I'm doing, so if she wanted to go shopping and, and she would normally go out, let's say Saturday afternoon, I didn't stop her. I wasn't, again, I tried to work on myself. But it made a big impact because there were certain things we couldn't do as a couple anymore. And that's when, you know, she said, you know, I married you, you weren't orthodox, and, and now you've done this. How could you do this without me? But if you see the Torah as truth and you see the writing on the wall, I mean, you have to do things. So. I, I couldn't go to shul anymore. I didn't want to go to the conservative shul. So, and at the conservative shul, let me just say that, I mean, I don't know. You might say I was a macher at the conservative shul. I laned, I davened, I, you know, I gave tzedakah, I did many things. So all of a sudden now I'm not going. So anytime that she or my kids went to the conservative shul, they want to know, where's Jan? Where's Jan? You know, so it wasn't that comfortable. But somehow or other, I, I went to some rabbis to ask advice, so it's kind of funny. One rabbi said to me, ah, you're in a great place. You know what we're going to do? I'm going to get you a scholarship. I'm going to send you to Israel. You'll learn over here in this, I don't know where, uh, for six months, and it'll be free, and it'll be great. And, and, and I said to him, rabbi, I have a job. I have a wife. I have a family. I can't go and do that. He says, oh, okay. Uh, I know we'll do summer, summers. Yeah, we'll send you all expenses paid. You'll go to this one place. You'll learn the summer. It'll be great. What I work in the summer. Oh, oh, okay. Well, I'm not sure what to do then. But there was one rabbi who I told what was going on, and he said, listen, you're just going to have to get through it if there's respect. Somehow you get through it. Just make sure you respect your wife, you respect your family. You'll earn their respect too, and just hold on as best you can. And, you know, it's the life's in the struggle. That's what he told me. So that's kind of what happened. It wasn't pretty for a number of years, but... It um, eventually, um, we moved to Manhattan. So when we were living in New Jersey, my kids were in high school and I couldn't move to where I wanted to because I'd uproot them and that would go against my principle of impacting their life too much. What kind of school are they in? Public school at that point. I took them out of Solomon Schechter and they were in public school for the high school years. At that point, two had graduated and two were still in high school. So I had to wait until my youngest graduated high school. So actually, it was five years that I was Orthodox and davening by myself at home on Shabbos. During the week, I would go to Passaic to learn, as I mentioned before. But 
for Shabbos, I was, I was home. But then when my youngest graduated, we moved to Manhattan. And there, it's great. There's a lot of shoals and it's culture food, whatever. So it was easy. And it wasn't like everybody's looking at you saying, you know, oh, they did this or they did that. So as you improve your Yiddishkeit, there are people there who are very helpful. And it actually did, uh, did quite good for me to be in, in Manhattan. And my wife became Orthodox there also. And so, you know, we were invited out a lot for Shabbos meals and we had guests. And um, that was it. So we had a good time there. What do you think changed her perspective? Is it living in a place where you have the infrastructure, the restaurants and the people who are like-minded? Like what changed her from how she felt about it when you first got married? How she felt about it when you started becoming more observant? What changed for her? I think the fact that we were invited out a lot, she would hear people giving drushes, and I think she got interested in some of the shiurim that were there. And then when she would go on Shabbos and somebody would say something, she'd look at me and say, that's from Rashi. You know, so <laughs> she, she was learning more, and, and, and she got to be a part of, you know, what's going on. So I think that that part, being immersed in a community, was helpful to her because in the conservative community, she was very active. She had challah bakes in the house and did many things. And so when I wasn't a part of it, it's like some part of it withdrew. But when we moved to Manhattan, you know, after a year or two, we got established there. So then she felt part of the community again. And this part of the community was all with people who were very from. So she was treated nicely. She was treated with respect. And she liked that part. And she liked the community environment there. And did your kids come around to what you were doing at that point? Or they were doing their own thing? Um, not really. My oldest is from. She married a from boy, and they have from kids. They just made Aliyah. They went to Pardes Khan in Israel. The others are conservative. One married a non-Jewish person, so, you know, they're in different stages. But who knows? Had it been different and I started this earlier, maybe it would be different. But by the time things got going around and I got a handle on what I was doing, you know, my kids were not little kids anymore. I'm wondering what family get-togethers are like when you have this whole blend of fully observant all the way to someone who's married to someone who's not Jewish. How do you blend all that when you have time together? Well, when it comes time, for example, for a Seder, so we always ran a Seder in the regular, quote-unquote, orthodox manner. You know, we had the right, the right Haggadahs and we did the right thing, so everybody knew all the Hebrew for the whole Seder. So even though we had different levels of observance, you know, when we make a Seder, I mean, it, it, it just went off great. Everybody knew everything. The question would be if we had a family vacation and it came time, let's say, for Shabbos morning, some people are going to go to shul and some people are going to be on the golf course. So it's just, it's the way it happened. Got it. And so your your second wife comes into the picture after your first wife sadly passes away. So she's observant from the beginning. What's her background? She grew up in East Flatbush and... Um, and in Crown Heights, and then in Borough Park, her family's Klausenberg. Her mother is a Holocaust survivor, um, so she was from from the get-go. If I was the person I was before I started to, uh, studying Talmud, she never would have married me. But um, we made a very nice life together. So what's your perspective now, looking back on your life and kind of when you discovered Judaism, when you started studying a lot more, when you became more observant about the choices you made and how your life has turned out? You know, I'm sad about a lot of it because I can look backward and say, you know, geez, I, I wish I would have, you know, had a better Hebrew education or I would have learned some Talmud when I was young or instead of spending the time that they taught us, learn a piece of it or something. But 
I have to go with what, what cards were dealt me. Luckily enough, I was born to a Jewish family. I've met many people along my way who, you know, became Jews, and the difficulties that they have trying to get through to, let's say, to where I am right now. So I thank God every day that at least I was born Jewish, so that helped a lot. But um, I try to do the best I can. So then what are the goals looking forward? I'm assuming there'll be another cycle of study. What's on, what's on your to-do list in terms of Judaism over the next two to three years? Well, I'm trying to, to better myself, so um, I have a chavrusa now. Um, before, I was paying sometimes here or there to try to learn more, but luckily somebody uh, had Rachmanis on me from the shul and that I go to now. And um, so, in fact, we learned already this morning, so we try to learn at least four to five times a week, and we're studying Yoma, and um, going through with a chavrusa and somebody you can really, you know, dig in or argue with. Having that kind of experience, getting to get a taste of Talmud on that kind of level is just a joy. One of Hani's nephews became a Dayan, and how he studies halacha a day, I don't know. So I guess I have to try to learn how to study halacha, but so far that hasn't been in the cards. So maybe that's going to be on the plate. But again, there's time trying to learn as much Talmud as I'm learning. We moved um, at the probably peak of COVID like about a year ago. We moved to Tom's River. So I'm in a place now where I'm six-minute walk from the shul, it's a Hasidic Shtibel where we have um, Spodex, Strimals, hats, and no hats. Everybody seems to get along. I put on a Strimal. I'm very happy here with it. All my brother-in-laws have Strimals, so when it would be at the mitzvah tons, you know, everybody used to be lined up in Strimals, and I was the one wearing a hat. So now I have a Strimal to join the crew, so I'm enjoying this phase of my life, and my wife is totally on board with it, so it's good here. You gave me the perfect lead into the lightning round of my first question. So are you ready? Okay. Do you think that Jan as a kid could ever have pictured that someday he'd be wearing a strimal? Yes. I didn't know what a strimal was, but we were in Israel one time when I was with my first wife. And I went to Davin on the men's side, right? And I ended up at a bima that had people that were in strimals. And my wife's comment to me was, you always gravitate to the hats. Okay, and you mentioned you're in Tom's River right now, so what's the best restaurant if somebody's visiting you there? I don't know the best, but we ate a bun last night and we enjoyed it. What kind of food is that? It's a little on the fast food side. We had um, a baguette with um, schnitzel and some brisket and some veggies inside, and steak fries were very good, so it's nice. <laughs> and so for someone who's just starting out, who's inspired by how deep you went into learning, what would you say would be a great first book or series for somebody to start with who's at the very beginning of showing an interest in learning? Well, that's a hard question. Uh, I would say there's a book called Genesis and the Big Bang, which is great. That talks about how um, Hashem created the world. Also, there's a book by Avigdor Miller, uh, Rejoice, O Youth, that's, uh, that's very inspiring. And then I would say Rashi and Chumash and, and, and the Talmud. I mean, it's kind of hard because everybody's got a different personality. I, I don't know that what I did is going to be transferable, but I would say some of those things are were very inspiring. And, uh, you know, being around the right people, I guess. Jan, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Great. So happy to be here. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard. 
or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.